Now this morning we're back in the book of Ruth. And uh, man, what a little book it's been. If you've missed any of uh, the last couple of weeks or three weeks, let me give you just kind of a brief summary to catch you up before we dive in. In chapter one, uh, we meet a family in the city of Bethlehem. We have Elimelech and Naomi. They are married. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. And in Bethlehem, it's a really tough season, man. The economy tanks out. Uh, there's a famine. Things get really hard. This family makes a terrible decision to leave the promised land, and they move to an enemy country uh, 50 miles across the Dead Sea uh, to a country called Moab. And they're there for 10 years. While they're in Moab, both Elimelech, the father, and the two sons die in that foreign nation. And Naomi is left all alone and devastated. She is hurt. She is confused. She gets bitter. And she decides to go back to the promised land, to go back to Bethlehem, to be in God's presence, to be with God's people. And one of her daughter-in-laws, named Ruth, uh, decides to go with her. Now, Ruth is just miraculously, we don't know how exactly, we just know that it happens. She is converted. She leaves all of her idolatry of Moab behind, and she begins to love and follow the God of the Bible. And so she actually decides to go back with Naomi, her mother-in-law, to Bethlehem. The problem is they get back to Bethlehem, and they are hungry, they are homeless, and they are completely destitute. They have two primary needs when they move back. They have a need for food, and they have the need for redemption. Because in this culture, two childless widows would have had no hope. They would have had zero chance at anything but a life full of poverty and abuse unless someone called a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. We kind of broke that down. We described that for you last week. If you missed it, go back and, and listen to it. But unless somebody called a family redeemer stepped up to the plate and essentially rescued them from their plight, they had zero hope of a life at all. Chapter two, we then get introduced to a man named Boaz who looks an awful lot like Jesus. He feeds Ruth, he feeds Naomi, he goes out of his way to be loving and kind to Ruth, showers her with grace, and there appears to be, in chapter two, a budding romance. Also, in chapter two, we see that one of Ruth and Naomi's primary problems is solved, the problem of food, because Boaz takes care of that, just gives them tons of grace, tons of food. But the second problem that they have still remains because they're still waiting on redemption at the end of chapter two. Last week, we saw what amounted to the first date between Boaz and Ruth. Nice romantic dinner over some roasted grain, candlelight, maku buble playing in the background. It was really quite a romantic scene. And then this week, things, things get a little dicey. I'm not gonna lie to you. They get a little bit scandalous in chapter three. Chapter three of Ruth is why a lot of pastors will not preach through books of the Bible um, because it's way easier just to kind of cherry pick uh, passages that do not make you uncomfortable um, to, to preach, but I'm one of those weird people that doesn't mind feeling uncomfortable. Uh, more than that, I love to see you uncomfortable. And so we're digging right in. We're digging right into Ruth 3, and I'm gonna watch your faces and love it. Now, remember, last week, at the end of chapter two, we left off with everything absolutely in limbo. So the first date between Boaz and Ruth goes down, awesome, romantic. And then we end the chapter with six or seven weeks of waiting, and everybody is wondering what is gonna happen. Are Boaz and Ruth, are they gonna get together? Are they gonna get married? 
Will Boaz actually redeem Ruth? Is he gonna punk out and get scared and not do it because it's gonna cost him something? People are gonna talk about him. How, are you, how could you marry this Moabite former idol worshiper? We don't know what's gonna happen. So we're gonna learn some, some more clues this week in chapter three. So if you have a Bible, go ahead, open it up, turn it on. Ruth chapter three, that's where we're gonna be the rest of the morning. And we're just gonna kind of read the text, work through it. We'll give some commentary. At the end, we'll give a couple practical applications and then we'll sing, we'll be done. So that's kind of the structure of our our morning. Chapter three, beginning in verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that's Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? So the the bitterness that we saw from Naomi in chapter one and even some in chapter two, kind of the the self-pity party that we saw Naomi living in and now appears to be over. God's hesed, that beautiful Hebrew word that we looked at last week that really means God's covenantal uh, love and commitment and kindness, God's hesed has really revived Naomi's weary soul at this point. Now let this be a reminder to us that when our souls are in that same place, when our souls are weary, when our hearts kind of just drift to those dark places and different seasons of our lives, man, let's just be reminded, just like Naomi, that the source of life and revival is only found in knowing our creator. And Naomi is a brand new woman. Chapter three, completely different woman than the one we saw in chapter one because right now she's not thinking just of herself anymore. She's not just focused in on her pain. She's focused on the well-being of others. And I think, just side note, that's probably one of the strongest evidences that God is active and working in any person's life when they begin to take interest in the well-being of other people because the reality is self-focused people, generally speaking, are not godly people. I think that's a good reminder for us. Naomi knows that in this culture, Ruth's Ruth's future is really, really bleak, to put it mildly, if she does not find a good husband. And so now Naomi is not focused on herself, her pain, her needs. She's focused on Ruth. She's concerned for her her daughter-in-law, which is a good thing. Verse two. Is, is, not our, uh, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, just in case, man, just in case we needed a reminder, the, the narrator is telling us that Boaz is a distant relative of theirs, which means that he has the potential in this culture to be what's called, again, a family redeemer. He has the potential to marry Ruth, and to redeem both of them out of poverty and even to continue their family line. Because you remember, Elimelech and Malon, both of their husbands died back in Moab. So this is a really, really big deal. Now, apparently, Naomi has been doing a little recon work, perhaps a little Facebook stalking, not that any of you would do that. Uh, We don't know how she knows, but she apparently has found out what Boaz is doing tonight and where he's gonna be doing it. So, uh, she's got the lowdown. Uh, I've learned mother-in-laws typically do have the lowdown, young guys, so just keep that uh, tucked away. And uh, so she gives Ruth this incredible, daring, bold, scandalous plan. Now, as we read this, if this makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, I think that's probably the intended purpose here. Like we, we are probably supposed to feel some tension here, even with sort of the sensual overtones that we see weaved throughout 
chapter three, ultimately we're being pointed back to the character and to the integrity of this man and this woman. Now, keep in mind, as we go through this, if you begin uh, sweating a little bit, if beads of sweat begin to form on your forehead, just wipe them away. It's, it's, all gonna, it's all gonna work out. It's gonna be okay, as you'll see in a minute and then next week as we wrap things up. So here's Naomi's daring three-step plan for, for Ruth, beginning in verse three. This, this, this is her advice. So she goes, Ruth, I want you to wash therefore and anoint yourself. That's, that's Hebrew verbiage for um, put perfume on. So wash yourself, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So Naomi says, hey, Ruth, here's, here's the three-step process to get ready for this daring mission. Step number one, take a bath. You stink, girl. Like you've, been out, you've been out in the fields for six or seven weeks. You haven't changed your clothes. You haven't had a bath. You stink a little bit. Go, go grab a shower. That's good advice for all of us too, right? If you're in middle school and you want to be noticed, by, go get a shower, man. Um, step number one, go get a shower. Step number two, anoint yourself. So put on some perfume, literally. Hey, go splash some Coco Chanel on or whatever it is that you wear. So you need it, you need it to smell good. So get a bath, put on your perfume. And then step number three, I want you to go through your closet and I want you to find your very best dress and I want you to put it on. Now understand, we have to understand that this is all imagery in the Old Testament of a bride getting ready for her wedding, right? Now, that, that's, that's really important. And then Naomi goes, once you've done all that, you're bathed, you got your perfume on, you got your best dress on, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the threshing floor, but I want you to hide in the shadows. Don't let anybody see you, even Boaz, until he is done eating and drinking so he'll be in a good mood. Now, I, I don't think, there's any indication, some have said, I don't, I don't think there is. I don't think there's any indication that Boaz is getting drunk here. Um, I don't think the narrator is painting a picture for us here of, of Boaz having too many drinks and he's dancing on the table with a lampshade on his head or something like that. Now, that's what Mike Watkins does on Monday morning when he has two or three coffees. But this is not, this is, this is not Boaz, right? This is not going down in chapter three. He's just, he's had a good meal. He's maybe had a drink. Um, after a hard day's work. And this is also really wise advice, ladies, right? You don't, you don't, wanna, you don't wanna approach your man with a big ask when he's hangry, all right? That, it's not gonna go well for you. Naomi knows that. She's an older woman, she's wise, she's been married, she knows the deal. And so the advice continues in verse four. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. And then go and uncover his feet. Your translation may say legs. Go uncover his feet or legs and lie down with him. And he will tell you what to do. Now, all of this is done in secrecy. All of this is done under the cover of darkness, late at night, in part because in that culture, the threshing floor was oftentimes a place of unrestricted immorality. We see in Hosea 9, for instance, that the threshing floor was oftentimes a place where prostitution would take place. And so it's, it's kind of the picture of, man, you have all these blue collar workers and they've been working hard the whole harvest season. And then at the end of the harvest season, they finally get their paycheck and women would show up with improper motives at that celebration, at that party on the threshing floor. Maybe they wanted a cut of those paychecks. And so that, that's kind of the connotation of the threshing floor uh, back in this culture in the Old Testament. Now, certainly things would have been different with Boaz. None of that clearly is happening on his threshing floor. But still, I think Naomi wants to 
protect Ruth's reputation, perhaps protect Boaz's reputation as well. She she goes, Ruth, here's what I want you to do. You got all your stuff on. You're looking good. You're smelling good. I want you to sneak over there, really, stealth-like, use all your, your ninja skills, and I want you to hide in the shadows. And then, this is really important, I want you to make sure you know where he lays down when the lights go out. Make sure you know that, because if you go to the wrong dude and do this, the whole plan's gonna be, it's gonna go sideways really quickly, and this might not even be safe for you. So, so once they're, they're asleep, the lights go down, make sure you notice where Boaz is, then I want you to go, sneak, sneak up to Boaz, and I want you to uncover his legs, and I want you to slip under his sheets, and I want you to lie down with him, and then he will tell you what to do. Now, if you're like me, you're reading this, you're thinking, I bet he will tell her what to do. That's the problem, Naomi. What, what are you thinking here? There's no doubt that there are sensual overtones here. Like all the Hebrew scholars that I've read have, have pointed this out with Hebrew words like uncovering uh, the terminology for lie down, which is used seven or eight times just in this one chapter, which is oftentimes in the Old Testament used to describe a sexual encounter. Although that certainly clearly does not happen uh, here in chapter three, we're gonna have to wait till chapter four for that. The audience still would have been hearing this 3,000 years ago and they would have felt very, very uncomfortable at this point. Some of you might be feeling a little uncomfortable at this point, right? But 3,000 years ago, moms would have been earmuffing their kids, right? Women of distinction would have been pearl clutching at this point in time, like, oh my God, I cannot believe this is in the Bible. This is PG-13 bordering on R. This is provocative to say the least. Now there is a tension here that I think we are meant to feel, like, oh dang, how did this end up in the Bible? I feel a little bit embarrassed just reading this out loud. It's gonna make more sense in a minute and then especially next week. Now, I think this is a good time for me to hit pause on the narrative and simply say that one of the first and most important rules of biblical interpretation is distinguishing between descriptive passages and prescriptive passages. Are you you tracking with me? A, A narrative is not necessarily normative. This is why, for instance, when we read in 1 Kings that Solomon had 700 wives, and 300 concubines, like I don't get up here and preach that as the new model of marriage for us, right? That that would be insane on multiple levels, right? So in 1 Kings, when we get that description, all God is doing is describing for us what Solomon did. He's not prescribing for us a new model of marriage. And so single ladies in the room this morning, please do not take Ruth chapter three and use it as a model to find your future husband. that That would be to miss the point. In fact, if someone told one of my two daughters many years from now, they can start dating when they're about 25, but if someone in this church were to come to my daughters when they're 25 and say, hey, this is how you find and marry a godly man, I want you to let him eat and drink and let his heart be merry, and then I want you to sneak into his bed late at night, I would excommunicate that person from the church. That's terrible, terrible advice, right? In fact, young single people, if you ever find yourself in a horizontal position or laying down with someone that is not your spouse or snuggling up under anything with someone you're not met, just stop it, all right? You're, you're doing it wrong. Now, those are awesome things to do once you're married, really, really dumb things to do before you're married. And so this is a descriptive text. This is not a prescriptive model for finding a spouse. I just want to make that really, really clear so I don't get any nasty emails from youth parents this week or my mother. All right, verse five. (laughs) And she replied to this daring, crazy plan, 
all that you say I will do, which is crazy, right? If I were in her shoes 3,000 years ago, I would have said, Naomi, you've lost your mind. Go to bed. We'll talk about this in the morning. But listen, Ruth has got great faith and a great God, and she says, all that you say I, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor. Just, just imagine how quickly her heart must have been beating at this point in time, right? She's not supposed to be there. It's dark. She can't be discovered. She's moving around in the shadows. And she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. That's important. She's keeping track. He's at the end of the heap of grain. That's Boaz. Then she came softly, ninja skills, and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings, or your translation say, may, gar may say garment. Spread your garment over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Whew. Things just got real. Ruth executes Naomi's daring plan to a T. She moves in, stealth-like, ninja moves, uncovers his legs, slips under his sheet, and lies down with him. And then at midnight, Boaz is startled, and I love the way the narrator puts it, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. <laughs> now, normally, just rule of thumb, if you wake up and there's a woman you don't know in your bed, it's time to reevaluate your life decisions. It's probably time for an intervention of sorts. But in this case, Boaz has done nothing wrong. He literally just wakes up, he feels something down by his feet, and he's like, oh, dang, there's a woman, all right? Now, that's my translation. Don't, work, don't look for oh, dang in the text. You're not gonna find it. It's, it's behold, right? But he's like, oh, man, there is a woman laying in my bed. Now, you gotta love Boaz's response to this discovery. He just goes, who are you? <laughs> And then Ruth goes, it's me. It's me, your servant Ruth. Spread your garment over me because you are a redeemer. Now, this is really clear symbolism for marriage. God himself actually uses this same imagery, the same wording in Ezekiel chapter 16 for marriage between himself and his people. So I'm gonna throw this on the screens really quickly. I want you to see it. Ezekiel 16, this is what God says. He says, when I passed by you, speaking about his people, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love or for marriage. And listen to this. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Now this is clear imagery for marriage. And Ruth essentially says to Boaz, hey man, you are a family redeemer and you can marry me. Like you, you, act, you, you can marry me. Now th listen, this is an insanely, mind-blowingly bold move by Ruth because the reality is this could have gone any number of ways, right? First of all, Boaz could have been offended by this. Right? He's a man of wealth. He's a man of noble character. He's, he's older than Ruth is. Ruth is this young Moabite servant. He could have shamed her. He could have turned the lights on. Everybody, look at this woman trying to come on to me. Get her out of here. He could have done that. If Boaz was a lesser man, certainly he could have probably taken advantage of Ruth physically, sexually here. Ruth is 
completely vulnerable in this moment, which again, to me, shows exactly how much trust both in God she had, but also the trust and faith in the kind of man Boaz is here. Verse 10, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, that's the same Hebrew word has said, right? You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now we can breathe a little bit because it appears that Boaz is thrilled with this. Now, I'm guessing that Boaz, this is not the first time Boaz has considered marrying Ruth. I'm guessing he's been thinking about this for weeks and weeks and weeks. But now, she has made it clear she wants marriage as well. It's also clear here that Ruth likely had no shortage of suitors or options, right? Because he said, you could, you could have gone after a younger man. You maybe could have even gone after a younger, wealthier man a richer guy, and yet Ruth has pursued what she believes to be God's plan. And Boaz sees that godly nature and inner character, and he's attracted to it. And he says, listen, Ruth, I will do all, I will do all that you ask me, baby. Anything you ask me, I will do for you. Now, this is, this is awesome. It seems like things are finally coming together, like Ruth and Boaz are gonna get married and they're gonna live happily ever after and they're gonna have a couple little kids, Boaz Jr. and Ruth Jr. and they're gonna have a little white picket fence and a vacation home and it's gonna be awesome except there is a catch because you know there's always a catch. And drama begins to build. Look at verse 12. And this is Boaz speaking. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, and yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Uh-oh. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Uh-oh, Houston, we have a problem. There's a, there's a hiccup in their love story because there's another guy. There's another dude that enters the picture who is actually a closer relative, which means in this culture, he has first rights to redeem Ruth and to marry Ruth. Now listen, Boaz, this will come as no surprise to you, Boaz is a way better man than I am because at this point, I think I would be so invested, I would say, hey, listen, uh, here's the deal. There, there's another guy, he has first right of refusal, but I know a couple of guys in the mafia and I'm gonna make him disappear and in the morning, we can get married and live happily ever after. But Boaz is a better man than me. And so the truth is, he probably just has great faith in God to actually work out all of the details. But he says, listen, let me go talk to this guy in the morning. If he will not redeem you, I will marry you in a heartbeat, Ruth. I would love nothing more than to marry you. So they lay down and maybe they drift off to sleep. But I'm guessing if I'm in their shoes, I'm probably gonna lay there wide awake all night thinking, oh my God, what just happened? And what is gonna happen tomorrow? I don't know, maybe they laid there and gazed into each other's eyes lovingly and maybe it was one of those things, I love you, no, I love you more, no, I love you most, I love you to the moon and back. I love you that much times infinity. Probably not, but that's just kind of how I imagine it. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. 
So again, Boaz, Boaz is protecting her reputation. He doesn't want anybody to have the wrong idea that anything inappropriate happened. Verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and, and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and, and put it on her. And then she went into the city. Now, you, if you're like me, you read that six measures of barley. I'm thinking like six little handfuls or something like a small. Scholars say, no, that, that actually is between 60 and 80 pounds of grain. So again, Boaz is just being ridiculously generous to Ruth. Like we said last week, Ruth is a strong woman. She eats her Wheaties and does her push-ups every morning. This does remind me of when Cheryl and I first uh, started, started dating. Uh, you may not know this about her, but she was an all-conference swimmer in, in college. And so she literally spent hours every day in the pool. And then she would have to spend hours in the evening running and lifting weights, working out. And so she was, she was buff, man. I mean, she, she was jacked up. And um, I kid you not, I was in class with her one day and she had a short sleeve shirt on and she was sitting across the classroom. And so I could, everybody could see her muscles just like rippling as she's taking notes. And I, no joke, I had a friend lean over to me and he said, hey, hey, your new girlfriend is jacked. Like you, you better not mess up. I think she could take you. <laughs> I remember thinking, good point. I think she might could. And so I haven't messed up, praise God, in 16 years. I'm, I'm still alive to tell the story. And, uh, and so that's, man, that's, that's kind of Ruth here. She's out there beasting, 60, 80 pounds, bam, let's go. And no problem at all. This is an impressive woman on multiple levels. Verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, again, been there all night, all this is going down. Naomi has no idea what has happened. She's got to be you know, just worried out of her mind, didn't sleep, sleep a wink. So Ruth comes back in the morning. She goes, how, how did you fare? How did you do, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six, me these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, when Boaz tells Ruth that she must not go back empty-handed to Naomi, that may ring a bell for you if you've been here, if you've been reading the book. And if it does, that's because that is the same exact language that Naomi uses in chapter one, verse 21, when she says, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. See, the author doesn't want us to miss this important truth. And this is really kind of the overarching big idea of the whole message this morning. I'll put this on the screens for you. God never leaves his children empty-handed. God never leaves his children empty-handed. Now, you, listen, you may be in a season of your life where you feel empty, but you need to understand this truth that God never leaves his people empty. Now, this is really good news, and Naomi is actually beginning to experience this truth. Her cup is filling up, and we'll see it begin to actually flow over, spill over next week in chapter four. Verse 18, and she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter, matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So again, we are left, as we were at the end of chapter two, uh, in a season of waiting. But this time, we are waiting in hope because we and they know the character of Boaz. They know the character of the Redeemer. She says, he will not rest until he settles things on your behalf today. In other words, Ruth, you can rest because we know that Boaz, I know that Boaz is out there fighting on your behalf. And so you rest, you have faith, you wait patiently, and let's just wait and see what God does through this. And so we wait 
with great anticipation for what's coming next. We will wrap up the story next week with the climax of the whole narrative. You don't want to miss it. But even as we wait, man, there is a ton that we can draw from, that we can take from this tension-filled, scandalous chapter in chapter three. So I just want to give you three traits, I think, that we see here of God-pleasing faith. We see from Ruth, and then we'll, we'll sing and we'll, we'll be done. So quickly, three traits of God-pleasing faith. Number one is God-pleasing faith takes big risks. Now, I'm not gonna belabor this, but we, we, live, we live in a society, in a culture that is risk-adverse. We just do. We, we live in a culture that breathes in fear and exhales anxiety, and right now, everybody's losing their mind over a virus, and on next month, it'll be something else. It'll be a war or a politician or whatever. We're just, we are a people that, that are consumed by fear and anxiety and anxiousness. I just, last week, I went and heard a talk from an expert um, on teenage boys. He's been working with teenage boys for like 30 or 40 years. And he said one of the biggest problems our teen boys face now is that in our culture, we have taught them how to be safe when they were designed for risk. We have taught them how to be safe when they were actually designed by their creator for risk. And he said one of the things his organization does is teach young men, and I love how he put it. He said, we teach young men how to play in traffic. We teach them how to take risks. We, we teach them how to live boldly and not be driven by fear. And this is not just for boys as Ruth teaches us, man. There was nothing safe about what she did. In fact, in the world's eyes, this was reckless and dangerous and foolish, but she had a big faith in a big God. Listen, I want you faith family to understand this. God has actually designed us as his sons and daughters to take big risks in his kingdom. He's designed us for that. He's designed us to, to say yes and take that mission trip that we're a little nervous to take. He's designed us to invest financially in his kingdom, even when the budget's a little tight at home. He's designed us to love the unlovable. He's designed us to forgive the unforgivable, to share our faith with a classmate or a neighbor or a coworker and even risk rejection. Because the reality is this, most of what God has called us to as his people, the good life lives on the other side of fear. And so we must learn how to take big risk in God's kingdom for his glory. That's trait number one of God-pleasing faith. It always takes big risk. It never lives in fear. The second trait of God-pleasing faith is that it is intimately personal. It's so personal. Ruth's relationship as a Moabite woman with her redeemer, Boaz, is meant, is meant to paint a picture for us of us, of ourselves, that, that we are like her. We have a real need, and we really need a personal, intimate relationship with our own redeemer. The reality is Ruth, man, she couldn't have a relationship with Boaz simply by learning facts about Boaz. She couldn't have a relationship with Boaz just because her, her parents had a good relationship with Boaz. The only way for her to have a real, authentic, life-changing encounter with Boaz, a real relationship with her Redeemer, was to get to know him closely and personally. I appreciate the way uh, Christopher Ash, a, a commentary uh, writer who wrote a, a commentary on the book of Ruth, I appreciate the way he, he puts it. This will be on the screens for you. Ash, Ash says, you and I, cannot have faith credited to us on the coattails of our parents or friends in some second-handed way. Faith 
must be individual and personal. Friend, let me encourage you. If you grew up in church or just because you grew up in church or just because your uncle or your grandpa was a pastor or just because you fancy yourself a good, upstanding, morally good person, none of that means that you have a right standing before God today. Because the truth is that one day when you stand before the God of this universe and one day you will stand before the God of this universe, the only thing that will matter on that day is whether or not the Redeemer has redeemed you. And whether or not you know personally, intimately, the Redeemer, that is Jesus. Now here's, here's the good news. If you, if you aren't there right now, I want you to know that you can be before you even leave this morning because he has invited you in. He's invited you into his family. He's invited you to pull up a, a seat at his table. This is the gospel. And then lastly, God-pleasing faith moves mountains. In other words, it actually works. And it works because it pleases God and then it moves God. Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And what that means practically is, man, it doesn't matter how much you go to church or how much you read your Bible or how much you tithe or how much you pray or any of that, without faith, it is impossible to please God. In fact, when we see Jesus, you read the Gospels, every time Jesus encounters great faith in the Gospels, he is always moved to act on behalf of the person with great faith. Now understand this, our, our faith is certainly, it is a gift from God, it's not something that we conjure up or that we earn or anything like that, it is a gift from God, but also understand that God-pleasing faith is active. We have to learn how to exercise our faith, and so let's become great people of faith because we have a great Redeemer who is pleased to work on our behalf. As we close, let me just invite you to bow your heads with me for, for a moment as the band comes gonna sing in just a minute and we'll be done. But I just wanna say to you quickly, friend, listen, wherever you are at this moment in your life, I need you to know one thing before you leave this morning. And here's what I need you to know. God loves you. Like don't don't just let that slide in one ear out the other because you've heard it 500 times. Process that, internalize that for a minute. God loves loves you and he's pursuing you and I don't think it's an accident that you're here in this moment in this room right now hearing this message from Ruth 3 he loves you and he is pursuing you he is the redemption and he is the redeemer that you seek he is the truer and the better Boaz and there is none like him so let me just ask you Have you come to the place in your life where you have acknowledged your brokenness and asked the Redeemer to redeem you? And I don't care how much you know about the Bible. I don't care how often you come to church. I don't care how much you give to this church. I don't care if you prayed the sinner's prayer 14 times when you were eight years old at VBS. I don't care about any of that. Have you ever come to the place in your life where you simply acknowledged your brokenness and your sinfulness in the face of a perfect holy and loving God and asked him to redeem you? Have you repented from your sin and have you believed in Jesus? 
Have you started a dynamic walk with him? And if the answer for that, honestly, for you is no, then the good news is that that's your first step today. That can change today. That's your first step. So listen, we, we can't even get to step two in your spiritual life. We can't get to step three or four in your spiritual journey until you have step one settled. And so if you're not certain that that is settled, let me, let me just encourage you to, to pray. Just pour out your heart to God when we pray in just a minute. I'll be up here at the end of the service. There'll be others up here. Come and talk to us. We'd be happy to walk you through what that process looks like. You can mark it on your Connect card. We'll email you, call you this week, whatever. But listen, if you're not sure about that, don't leave until you're sure this morning. Now, if you're here and you're a believer, you know Jesus, you follow him, here's my question for you. Is your, is your life currently marked with passion for the Redeemer or is your life currently marked with apathy towards the Redeemer? Like, have you heard this so many times that your heart has just become numb to it? Like it doesn't even really move you anymore? Listen, friend, God has loved you. God has loved you. God has redeemed you so that you might love God and love others with all that you have. So how are you doing with that today? The Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is worthy of our lives. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for loving us. God, help us, help us to see ourselves in this story. Help us see that, to see that we are Ruth. This is not just a cute little love story that happened 3,000 years ago. This, is, this in so many ways is our story. We also were hopelessly lost without your redemption, God. And so we thank you for providing the ultimate redeemer, the redeemer that's even better than Boaz, Jesus Christ, God. And so I pray for the people here, for the person here who doesn't know you personally, God, I pray that that would happen today, that they wouldn't leave this place until that relationship is settled, God. And for those of us who know you and follow you already, God, I pray that we would that we would live our lives like those who have actually been redeemed and set free as sons and daughters of the God of this universe. God, and we pray these things in the name that stands above every other name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.